When the world is ruled by violence and the soul of mankind fades, the children's path shall be darkened by the shadows of the neon maniacs. Episode 3, The Archer and the Park. Welcome to Episode 3 of In the Shadows, the Neon Maniacs. Continuing our journey this week, we'll pick up right after the opening credits, and we'll be focusing on the park sequence of the film. Jim Branscombe, Cinematic Boy. One of the first locations I discovered from Neon Maniacs is the Bogey's Liquor off of Melrose, because I used to live kind of near there. And I remember driving by, I was like, why do I know what this is? And then, like, you see that scene early on where, like, it's like, oh, shit, I know exactly where this is. I know people are probably more excited. Like, yeah, I know where the Michael Myers house is. Like, fuck that. I know where Bogey's Liquors is that was used in Neon Maniacs. It's on the corner of Gower and Melrose. And it's still there. It even still has a donut shop there. Although I don't think it's a Winchell's anymore. I think it's a Yum Yum Donut now. But it's it's pretty much the same. You know, you got you got Steven played by Alan Hayes. He's just like, he's jogging with his dog that's named Dog. And he runs into um, Natalie and her friends are getting ready to party. And it's like, it sets him up well because it's just like, he's supposed to be, I guess they try to portray him as kind of a nerdy guy, but it just doesn't kind of work because he's a little too charming and like, you know, kind of nice. Like he's a really, you know, for a horror movie, like lead male, he's resourceful, but he's vulnerable. He's not tough. It's just like, He's like a guy, but it's a good meet cute beginning between him and Natalie because Natalie is just in this van while her friends are complaining about spending five bucks on like booze at bogey liquor. Here, Wally. Fork over five bucks. Five bucks? We're talking beer, not champagne. Come here, boy, come here. Oh my god! <laughs> Hi, Natalie. Hello, Lisa. What's up, everybody? Oh, Has anybody seen my dog? Very funny, Stephen. Would you please get him out of here, please? Brian Sauer, Pure Cinema Podcast. The kids in the van, and I love that the, you know, sort of bully kid who gives our hero character a hard time, uses insults like baloney man and pasta breath. Hey, baloney man. Father gave you the night off or what? 
Naturally, Ray sent me out looking for you. He needs a bouncer in the fruit department. <laughs> it's pretty quick. Pasta breath. I'm just like, really, really digging deep, dude. You really nailed him. You really got him there. But but I also just love that, you know, the setup of his dog gets away from him. It runs to the girl that he ends up sort of having a liking to. And and that's just a really neat little setup. Say goodnight to Steven, girls. My name is Christopher Greenwood, and I was a third electrician on Neon Maniacs. A friend of mine was the gaffer, and I'd worked with him on commercials and stuff. Anyway, he said, man, you want to work on something interesting? And I said, sure, because I was pretty young then, you know, and uh, about 25, and um, had a lot of, I guess, stamina. <laughs> and so, yeah, we, uh, we went. It was a lot of night shoots. I didn't shoot on the whole film, but the part I shot on was like the Hollywood stuff at night and Griffith Park at night. I remember when they were, the guy's dog gets loose, you know, the guy went in to buy some beer and he comes out and the dog's licking the girl in the face. I remember we shot that all night long. I was up on top of Winchell's Donuts uh, most of the night with lights shining, you know, lighting the streets. It was like them going in the van and they get the shots of going up and down the street different angles of the van driving they would just get a bunch of shots of it driving for i guess different scenes but yeah yeah that was um that was the first step we shot my name is nat bocking and i was the assistant art director on neon maniacs and i remember the the van was one of the crew members vans they'd loaned it to us and we wanted to jazz it up and you know we couldn't do a paint job or anything on it so we got spray mount and gift wrap, multicolored gift wrap, and stuck it in stripes around the van. And that's why it has this distinctive paint job. And that was, again, super low budget filmmaking, using your creativity to achieve these things. Maniac number two, Archer. My name is Barry Buchanan, and I played the Archer in a Neon Maniac. Just to give you a little background on me, because I'm also a horror fan, fan, but I grew up on horror sets. My dad was director Larry Buchanan, if that rings any bells. He made, he's best known for uh, his, his, the cult following he has is Mars Needs Women. And he also did, let's see, 2889, which is the first film Sven Gulli ever showed on his, uh, on his uh, show 40 years ago. He also did uh, uh, Zontar, The Thing from Venus, The Eye Creatures, uh, Swamp Creature, Creature, let's see, what was the other thing? There were a bunch of ones with the name Creature in it. But anyway, he did a bunch of uh, sci-fi in the 60s. And so I grew up on those sets. I grew up on, you know, with zombies and, and, and monsters and all that. So that, that, of course, and I've been a horror fan ever since. The first thing I remember was, you know, the casting notice. They were looking for, and I don't remember right now exactly, you know, verbatim what the wording was, but they were kind of looking for kind of crazy, wacky, or wild people to play the, the, I don't remember if they called it creatures or killers or what. So I knew I had to do something. 
So uh, different just to get their attention. So um, I went down to the casting office. There was probably, I don't know, a dozen or 20 guys in the casting room. And so when the girl came out and called my name, she's a Barry Buchanan. And uh, I pulled a uh, nylon stocking out of my pocket and I pulled it over my head and I pulled, whipped out a big rubber knife I had gotten at a uh, Halloween store. And I barged into the room and I jumped up on their desk. There were three guys casting the thing. And I let out some kind of yell or something. And one of the guys almost fell out of his seat. And so uh, I, then I pulled off the stocking and they all laughed. And I, I think I was pretty much hired on the spot for that stunt. So that's how it started. Mark Patrick Carducci tells Fangoria, I tried to formulate a plot in one sentence, which helped me write the whole script. And that sentence was, Natalie, a pretty high school student, becomes the target of a supernatural band of roving homicidal maniacs. And that's the plot of the movie. There's also another reason for a predicament that we layer in. She's a virgin. She's pure. And there's that idea that evil wants to destroy purity. So there is a slight sexual context to the maniacs. Hi, I'm Megan Navarro. I wrote the article Underseen Monster Movie Neon Maniacs and It's Troubled Production from the It Came from the 80s column on bloodydisgusting.com. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the first watch that people have raises so many questions. So I, you know, part of re multiple rewatches is kind of studying why things happen the way they do you know there's such a clunky conversation happening in the van in that early scene that kind of sets off the whole thing where her friends are really grilling her like about being a virgin and it's so clunky in the dialogue that it can be distracting and I just needed to know like what why 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 is everything happening that the way they do because you know, Mark Carducci's script, at least, you know, the final version of the film, nothing is really explained. Like the the narration is the closest we get to exposition. You're kind of left to pick up on clues. So why are her friends hounding her for being a virgin? Um, and that doesn't really come up until much later. You haven't done it yet, have you? So was that a crime or something? No. How can you stand it? Sex isn't everything, Lisa. Steve and Nell would probably help you out. Oh, give me a break, okay, Lisa? Okay. But I bet you're the last virgin in San Fran. What the fuck? I'm Armando Munoz, a former friend of Neon Maniacs writer Mark Patrick Carducci. The director had a background as a director of photography on a lot of notable, you know, genre films. And so, you know, I do see that he had talent and individual shots in the film really stick with me. Like when the first, the first shriek that the kids hear in the park and the way they're looking out and looking up to hear where the noise is, the guy who's off taking a leak with just that sharp lighting silhouette, you know, looking for the sound. Things like that really stick with me and are kind of creepy. You know, I, I jokingly mentioned the room earlier, but you know, this is another movie set in San Francisco that wasn't really shot in San Francisco and involves random people playing fucking football. Come on, throw the ball. You know, 
And it's like, if I was Natalie and that was my birthday party, I'd be kind of pissed. I would be kind of waiting for the neon maniacs to come and kill all my, you know, kind of whack ass friends or whatever. What are you doing? Keep it up, Fallon! The one thing I remember well was we did the, the big Griffith Park sequence, the big sort of slasher, which I know I think was re, there was bits reshot. They kind of, they shot it the first time, then they went back. But we shot for several nights. It just seemed interminable. It was probably a week or something. But when, the, when all the teenagers are drinking and there's the, the orange van driving around and then they all attack. Um, everyone was in good spirits and stuff. It was like, oh, it's, you know, it's, a, it's another gory movie, you know. I think a lot of people had experience. I certainly went on to have experience of like Corman movies and stuff where you don't expect much in the way of, you know, trailers or anything. But I remember the effects guys were very, very busy. They were just, you know, they had to get people through the chair and stuff. As far as the as the shoot, I just remember it was just pitch black and cold. That's all I remember. All night shots in Griffith Park. I would drive down. I was living in Agora Hills at the time, and I would drive down to Griffith Park and, and get there. Like I think the sun had already gone down, but uh, I would go into the makeup trailer, and they had to do. I was probably in that chair every time they put that mask on me it was a good three hours or something because they had to glue it all on the only places in the mask where the human skin showed through was around my eyes and i think my lips and anyway they had to black out my eyes my eyelids and this makeup guy god the first time he did it i said you i mean he just kept uh how, tapping his his makeup brush on my eyeballs really beat my eyes up the very first time I did. I said, you got to find another way to do this. I'm not going to last through this shoot if you're going to have my eyes hurt for three days, putting all that black on my eyelids and around there. Anyway, he glued this mask on, and I got this outfit on. And it was a good thing because I think the, the outfit actually kept me warm because it was really super cold in the park. And, and it would even get colder. You would think it would get, you know, colder around midnight no it was as it went into the a.m hours it would just get freezing everything was covered with moisture and everything my favorite maniac is probably archer just because like there's just something cold-blooded about him like the way he just like sets up that crossbow and he's just like taking sniping people out with it it's just like there's just like a cold-blooded meanness to it in a way like you know, some of the maniacs are a little jokier. Some of them are like, you know, scary. There's just like, there's something methodical about him. Like he could be his own. Like it could have just been a movie of him and it'd been fucking scary as shit. You know, when I got there, I got on the set, the, the prop guy, I'm thinking, okay, I've got my outfit, my mask is on and everything. And where's my, here's your crossbow. They didn't hand me a phony crossbow. The thing was real. I mean, it was a real crossbow with a real arrow in it. I mean, I was scared I was going to, if I had ever shot that thing at anybody, I really would have killed somebody on camera. I mean, it was, it was a live crossbow. And uh, I'm standing there with it one time, and the director walks over, and he's talking to me, and he says, uh, hey, I, I, he took the crossbow for me, and he goes, what's this thing like? I never... You know, and then I said, well, we'll be careful with it. And I guess he thought he would uh, just shoot the arrow into the ground. 
he kind of aimed down at the ground. Well, when he pulled the trigger on the thing, he didn't allow, he didn't gauge for when that thing let loose where the bow was going to end up, and it smacked him on his big toe. I mean, it was like a hammer coming down his big toe. And he was holding his foot and screaming, and he went bouncing and leaping into the, into the woods in agony from that, from that crossbow when it went off. Oh, man, I thought, I thought, oh, great, I'm on the set now. You know, I've, I, I'm just glad that he didn't shoot himself with the arrow in the foot, man. So uh, I'm thinking, well, maybe they're going to call me and tell me not to come back after that. But he took the crossbow from me. It wasn't my fault. You know, that, that's another thing about this movie I love. It's because it's kind of dark. There's a lot of fun stuff and there's funny stuff, but like there's some mean shit in that movie. When they're like killing all of Natalie's friends at the park, it is some cold-blooded stuff. But yeah, it's kind of a leisurely pace because you're like, I it kind of sets it up to be something different. Like, oh, is this going to be kind of a survival horror thing where like all these people are going to get bumped off one by one, which is kind of traditionally how you know, a Friday 13th would work. You expect that these are characters we're getting to know and they will slowly be picked off over the course of the film. And instead it's a bloodbath and only one survives. So, I mean, it's definitely a kind of a ballsy setup for a horror movie to do that straight away. And it can also be a little confusing narratively and trying to get a grasp of the story and where it's going to go. Well, instead, it's just like a wholesale slaughter. You get introduced to all the cool neon maniacs. You get the samurai one. You get, you know, you get a bunch of people just wiped out immediately. Hi, I'm Matt Asner, and uh, I played the character of Stringbean in the movie Neon Maniacs. You know, it was it was interesting. That was my first, That I think that was my first movie as an actor. So... It was uh, it was pretty wild to be going to the set and and uh, be hired for that. And I remember I had to get fitted for the prosthetic arm before the before the shot before they we shot. It was a it was a, a bit of a process going through all that. I guess Joseph, who's the director, was really big in the video world, and so he had all these people who made used to, who were used to making lots of money on on shoots. And I think you had you had them all kind of congregate on this film uh, that was a really tight budget film and uh, things did not go as planned I think <laughs> I don't know what you've heard but it, it got kind of crazy for a while and so you were saying it's your first movie so how did you get the role well I read I read for the role a couple of times and uh, it's, it's funny when I say I read for the role because it was really I don't think that I don't. I don't think I had any dialogue. I think I was just kind of walking through every scene. Maybe I had one or two lines, but they were cut out. I think, but you know, I, I just kind of floated in the in the in the park scene. I think I floated in and out, uh, bugging people, bugging the lovers and uh, others. You want a beer? Just a sip. String bean. Let him go, Wally. So you did like all the park stuff pretty much. Yeah, I, I remember it was around Halloween and there was a family tragedy uh, that happened right when I was supposed to start filming. And uh, so it was just kind of an overwhelming thing to 
be able to to, to go there and and be there uh, because there was a there was a horrible thing that happened in my family. My sister's nose was bitten off by our dog, and so this literally happened like a day before we shot, and this uh, this mayhem and uh, awfulness happened. Uh, so it was kind of a joy for me to go to the set and kind of forget all that. Oh man. And then you're a part of like one of the most horrific parts of the movie too. Like, you yes, it, it, it's uh, it was quite, it was quite, quite a scene, but it's funny because, you know, when you shoot that kind of stuff, you kind of, most of, most of what you're doing is sitting around and kind of getting to know people because you're doing night shoots. I do remember having a lot of fun on that set. I remember it being very cold and I remember they had a, a fire or something, a fire pit maybe, which is probably totally illegal. String Bean's death. String Bean leans against a tree, engrossed in lighting firecrackers. Unbeknownst to him, the ominous samurai maniac quietly advances. String Bean swiftly turns around just as the samurai maniac unsheathes his sword. String Bean hastily ignites a Roman candle and thrusts it into the approaching maniac. The maniac's blade swings toward Stringbean. His arm falls to the ground, still gripping the flickering Roman candle. I remember my scene, I was supposed to, you know, they were supposed to cut my arm off. You were supposed to actually see it, right? What happened was, and maybe you, you're, gonna, you're gonna talk to the special effects makeup guy. Well, you can ask him about this because uh, and I don't know if it was my fault or not. I was a young actor. I had, I, like I said, I had no real experience in front of the camera. And from my first major scene to have my arm chopped off, that was, that was something else, right? So I'm holding a, a Roman candle in, in, the, in the prosthetic arm. And uh, I light the candle. I light, light the Roman candle. And, and, I, and the, the samurai is supposed to come towards me and this is really silly, really. I mean, it's really silly. The Roman candle is supposed to explode into him and uh, you're supposed to see all these, you know, fire and sparks coming out of his body. And for some reason, the prosthetic arm did not work right. So it did not, um, you know, obviously you want something, you want the arm chopped off and you want blood spurting and you want me going, you know, and it just didn't work right. And mechanically, I think something happened mechanically and it wasn't working right. So we're like, okay, how do we do this? How do we do this? And they're saying, well, we can, we can cut and then they can show the arm dropping to the ground. That's what we can do. And I think that's what they ended up doing. So the arm, you know, you, you, you've got, you know, what's going on. The, you know, you've got the samurai who's like, Hey, I'm on fire. And you've got your, you're obviously winning this battle, but then you see the arm come down on the ground and obviously things didn't end that well. And I always felt kind of ripped off because you never really saw what happened to my body. I was like, is that why I got fitted for this arm? I mean, what, what happened here? So, and I don't, I honestly don't remember, I'm being honest with you. I don't remember um, if it's something that I did, if they were like, if I got to the set and I'm like, what is this idiot doing? He does not doing this right. Perhaps that was it. I, I have no idea what the real reason for my arm not working uh, was. Hi, I'm Alan Apone, the makeup effects department head and owner of Makeup and Effects Laboratories. I'm Mike Spatola, makeup artist, uh, instructor at Cinema Makeup School. A lot of that stuff was done as reveals, as I remember, I, you know, I think, because there was so much stuff that had to be done that 
to build all those rigs, there wasn't a lot of time. So I know that I know that um, we had talked it, talked Joe into letting us do reveals. You know, so we set it up so that whatever happened, you know, whatever the effect was, we saw the aftermath of it. We didn't see it actually happen. Um, right, like like if you do like a, like a whip pan kind of effect yeah. where you'd follow the sword, but then you see the arm hit the ground, but you don't actually see it cut through flesh and all that stuff. My name is Wayne Beecham. I was a special effects coordinator and pyrotech. I don't know who the first guys were. There were other guys that had worked ahead of me. I don't know who they are. I don't think I should say who they are if I knew it. But they left for, for whatever reason. One of the effects that I had to do, that they wanted to do, was was the uh, flare going through the guy's body. And I had done a similar thing where I shot a flare on an arrow, and it hit a guy at the beach, and he was on a rock, and he falls into the ocean, and it burns underwater. Uh, it's stuck in a guy's chest burning, and then he does a high fall in the ocean. He actually had cameras where they could see it burning underwater. So I don't know what movie that was. I can't remember it. So, you know, sometimes you come in for a day. It was probably another 50 movies, and I've got you know, 230, I think, 229 movies on my IMDb. And some of those are only just for the days to come in for effects. It used to be we're on the entire project, like Stargate. I was on that show for like seven months. Freddy versus Jason was seven months, which wasn't barely enough time, even with 100 people working with us. So anyway, but uh, I think I brought, I think one of my stunt friends came out to help me do the rig. Uh, I, I went out to do the hanging rig. I, apparently there had been some kind of brouhaha that had happened before I arrived, and the guy who was, who was doing the effects walked away and left a rope lying on the ground by a tree. And when I arrived, they said, all the effects guys here, uh, how fast can you rig it? And I said, where's the equipment that was supposed to have been there? The guy said, well, he's going to leave the stuff, but uh, he didn't want to leave them high and dry but the, with a promise to get paid. But there was a lot of uh, angry people. But all I saw was a rope, and I said, we can't do this. So we went and got the harness, and uh, we put the guy in the hanging rig. I don't think he was in this. There's two types of hanging rigs. There's one that goes to a harness that's a chest that picks up by the legs. It's kind of uncomfortable. And the second one, it goes to it's a cable system that, has actual feet cut out the shape of in aluminum that you can actually the person is actually standing on cables that are running down the legs and going to a harness so he can stand up and look like he's hanging and the rope itself is, is normally cut the uh the hanging rope runs with a cable through it up the back and then the, the rope that's the noose part is is just uh either stitched on with it with thread or is put on with velcro or stuck on with tape, it just loops around the neck. So just in case something does go wrong, the guy won't get hung. He'll just be hanging from his harness, not his neck. That, that was the two main effects. What the fuck are you guys dressed for? You guys looking for a game? Think fast, pal. Play rough. Go both ways, bozos. So it was like only one night you were there, or was it a few nights? I, I think it was two or three nights. 
There's no way in the world could I have gotten that all done in one night. Maybe I did in those days. I don't know. I, you know, I can't really remember. I know it was, No, it couldn't have been because uh, I, knew, I remember it was a panic call. Can you come out here and do this gag? Then we got into the other pyro stuff, and I made a deal with them to do that because that's, that's not the type of uh, a gag that you can just go out uh, on the spur of the moment without, without a huge truck and three or four guys and having, uh, knowing what's happening ahead of time and having everything pre-rigged. And without CG, you're using real fire, real chemicals, stuff's burning, stuff has to be fireproofed, uh, and it, you can't just do that on the spur of the moment. Uh, it's not safe. Oh, no, I hear you. So you're like a mercenary just sitting at home. You get this phone call, and you're off to Griffith Park. and, and... All the time. It happened It happened all the time, sometimes two and three times. I'd do two in one night. I'd be working on a series at Universal. I worked on three or four series. And then at night, I'd get a call from a student film that was in a jam or needed bullet hits, or I'd have to come in there and bootleg a shot for them. Uh, they couldn't afford too much. I do it for students all the time. I probably did 50 student films that way. You know, they they really couldn't afford it. And some of them turned out to be, you know, well-to-do producers and directors later on in life, and they ended up calling me. So I was I just loved the business. You know, no, no, no that that's that's cool. No, but but thank. You. I love that story. Just getting there, and all of a sudden, there's like a rope on the floor. <laughs> Yeah, so it was like a dirty, grassy area with a big, giant oak tree, and the rope was just laying there next to the, next to the trunk of the tree, and the van was sitting behind me, and darkness all around. I mean, it was just lit in that little area. It had brought back a lot of. I watched it when I watched it on TV the other night. It brought back a lot of memories. And then I just flashed. I said, God, now I remember. Now I remember that what that gag was and why why I was there. You know. But I'm pretty proud of that that flare shot. That flare shot worked really well. I mean, it was a profile, and uh, it, it stood up. My name is Barry Buchanan, and I played the archer. Uh, well, anyway, what, I, this, this makeup guy, I don't know who, or they were going either, I don't know if it was the same guy, but um, I, one time the guy used uh, the wrong, rather than, you know, spirit gum to put on the, the mask, the guy, whoever this was that they hired, I think it was a different guy, he used like a surgical glue to put my mask on. And when they took it off, it ripped my eyebrows off. And, you know, to this day, they've never grown back the same as they were before that shoot. I mean, just ripped all my eyebrows off. With, with that surgical blue, part of my, like half my eyebrows. Some of it had kind of grown back, but not, they were like really nice before that. It's just the guy used the wrong blue. So anyway, I continued. I, I went and I got the mask. And one night I, uh, I get there and uh, we're shooting and it's a cold, freezing night. And, and it's always it was pitch black in that park all the time. So I'm coming back. It was about three like three in the morning, three thirty or something. They finally cleared the set, and I go back to get my mask off. Well, the makeup guy had gone home. I didn't have, you know, like any of the creams or anything to take off uh, the mask that he had put on me. So I didn't have, you know, like any of the creams or anything to take off uh, the mask that he had put on me. So. I tried my best to take the thing off. I wanted to get it off my face, and I, I kind of 
tore what I could of the mask off, but it left like pieces hanging all uh, off my face and my eyes were all blacked out still. And when I took the neon cap off, I mean, I looked like Beetlejuice. And so now it's about four in the morning and I get in my car and I get, get to get home. So I leave Griffith Park and I'm driving around these roads and I come up to this stop sign and it was a stop sign right there. There was a cross on the other side of the road was uh, Forest Lawn Cemetery. And about at 4.30 in the morning, there was just that first light of sun coming through. And there's this fog that's about three feet off the ground. And it's very hypnotic. It was flowing down the hill and over the tombstone on the other side of the iron gate from where I was, where I came to the stop sign. And it was hypnotic. I thought, wow, what production value. Look at this shot, you know, of this, this river of fog just flowing down this hill in the cemetery. So I'm sitting there and I'm looking, looking, I'm watching this. Of course, I've forgotten what I look like. And this car pulls up next to me on the left. And I look over and it's this woman and she's looking at the fog, and then she looks over and sees me. And here I am, this zombie sitting in this old cutlass. And she looked back at the cemetery, looked back at me, and she just floored it and burned the, she burned tires up the hill through the stop sign and just left. And so luckily that night, I, I managed to make it back just as the sun was coming on. I made it back to my house and got in the house before any of my neighbors saw me. That wraps up our third episode. Our opening and closing theme music is by Shane McKinney. This show is written, produced, and edited by your host, Stephen Scarlatta. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and share this podcast so we can reach more horror fans like yourselves. Thank you so much again for listening. And until next time. Stay out of the shadows.